my mother-in-law's family would not have been sold a house in Lexington in 1958. But her father knew someone through a work connection, a lieutenant colonel, who told him that when he was redeployed, he would sell him the house. Most of the neighborhood welcomed them, but their direct neighbor wanted nothing to do with a black family next door. They petitioned Peacock Farms Association to allow them to build a seven-foot fence between their properties. No other such fences existed in the community. When they were told no, the neighbors decided to move rather than live next door to a black family. My mother-in-law was one of three black kids in her Lexington school the only one in her grade, and the other two were her two sisters. This fall, our theme together is courage. And I think of the little girl version of my mother-in-law and her little sisters, the first and only black children in an all-white school in the 1960s. She told me that her grandfather talked to her about this situation when she was eight years old. He asked her, an eight-year-old child, how long she thought it was going to take to undo racism in this country. Her little eight-year-old mind reached for a long, long time and said, until I'm 21? Longer than that, he said. Until my children are 21, thinking of a time which seemed impossibly far away. And he told her, it took us 400 years to make this mess. It's going to take another 400 to undo it. She's now in her 70s and has remembered that moment and that conversation all her life. And I'm fascinated by that moment, by her grandfather, by all he had seen, all he had endured in his lifetime, and the clear hope that it would get better for his grandchildren, but also the clear vision that it will take some time. Courage is like this. Liberation is like this. It is contagious. Brian Stevenson, author of Just Mercy, tells this story. When I grew up, I never really talked about it in my family much. I didn't talk about my background or anything. But for me, it really begins with my great-grandfather. He was enslaved in Caroline County, Virginia, and he learned to read while he was enslaved. And I never really thought about it until later, but I just started thinking about the kind of hope, the kind of vision it took to believe that one day you're going to be free, even though everything around you indicates that freedom is unlikely for enslaved black people in Virginia in the 1850s. He continues, somehow he had hope. 
And he learned to read, and he loved it so much that he wanted to share it with others. So my grandmother would talk about how after emancipation, other formerly enslaved folks would come to their home, and my grandfather would stand up and read the newspaper every night. And she'd sit next to him because she loved the power he had to engage people, to make people feel calmer and more informed. She would use the word love, and it has absolutely shaped my work more and more and more. I love that his grandfather learned to read, somehow felt this pull, this call to freedom, with no evidence on the outside that his circumstance would change, but just this deep calling to deep inside of him. And not that it was just something for him. Not that it was just something personal, but inherently connected to others. His freedom, his liberation was bound up in community, in everyone gathering to learn, to listen, everyone gathering to hear the news. I have long been fascinated by liberation theology. This is a theological movement which took hold in Central America and was first articulated by Gustavo Gutierrez in the 1970s in his book, A Theology of Liberation. But that book was a crystallization of work that was being done, just like that grandfather learning to read and then sharing news in that circle of listeners for so many years. Gutierrez writes, The creator of the world is the creator and the liberator of Israel, to whom is entrusted the mission of establishing justice. He then quotes the prophet Isaiah, and he says, Thus speaks the Lord who is God, who created the skies, who fashioned the earth. I have called you with a righteous purpose to take the hand. I've called you and appointed you to open eyes that are blind, to bring captives out of prison, out of the dungeons they lie in darkness. He continues, creation is regarded in terms of the exodus, a historical salvific fact which structures the faith of Israel. It is a political liberation through which God expresses love for the people and the gift of total liberation is received. This was then a radical idea, this idea that the church could be a vehicle for transformation, a call for this religious experience to resist the oppression which so many faced. And I think one of my favorite things about this all is this came about in Central America and that Christianity was brought there as a tool of the oppressor. Colonialism brought Christianity as a willing accomplice Complex as it was, still a willing accomplice to oppression. But there's something inside the story, something inside the liberating truth of our human experience and our relation to the holy, this resonance of history, the story of the exodus out of Egypt, the story of Jesus and his work with the poor and all people, even though Christianity was swept up into power, Even though those same stories were being used to placate the poor and legitimize new systems of oppression and subjugation, still there was this liberating love. Gutierrez and others, Archbishop Oscar Romero and others, called people to freedom. 
In the introduction to the third printing of that book, Gutierrez tells the story of Archbishop Romero. He writes, this great bishop risked his life in Sunday homilies and in interventions which responded to first world pressures by continually calling for a peace founded on justice. He received several death threats. The murder of six priests in preceding years was already a warning closer to home just one month before his own death. With reference to those in power in his country, he said, let them not use violence to silence those of us who are making this demand. Let them not continue killing those of us who are trying to bring about a just distribution of power and wealth in our country. I speak in the first person because I just received a warning that I am on the list of those to be eliminated next week. But it is certain that no one can kill the voice of justice. Even with the threat of death, Romero and others remain committed to this liberating love, to this vision and practice of their religion, which could not stand abiding the sidelines as systems were crushing so many. Again, this liberation is contagious. This is the core of all religion, this remembering, this reaching in and reaching out. This is what we touch here, here in these supportive circles, here in this sacred space. We touch the depths. We remember who we most deeply, truly are, even for a few moments transported by music, listening now to these words, connected in silence. We are free here for a time from all that holds us down and all that holds us back. We are free here for a time from the voices in our head whispering or loud, telling us that we are broken, telling us that we are insufficient to the task ahead, telling us all manner of half-truth and lie. We are free here to remember hope and truth, to refill and refresh for the struggle ahead. Somewhat miraculously, or perhaps perfectly logically, around the same time that Gutierrez was writing A Theology of Liberation, James Cone was writing the classic A Black Theology of Liberation, in which he makes a similar call to a lived, embodied religious impulse which rejects oppression and subjugation. And crucially, and I feel so beautifully, he grounds this theology in passion and living. He writes, my characterization of this theology as a passionate theology is the, like Paul Tillich's analysis of the existential thinker. He says, do not wish to be a philosopher in contrast to being a person. Do not think as a thinker. Think as a living, real being. Think in existence 
Love is passion, and only passion is the mark of existence. He says, only what is an object of passion really is. This existential thinker is a thinker who not only relates thought to existence, but whose thought arises out of a passionate encounter with existence. Cohn calls us to a lived, connected experience. Last week, many of us were outside, which was beautiful, and the winds were blowing fiercely. And that moment there in that wind, that was a beautiful reminder of this existential connection. The strain of liberation is in the wind in that moment, in this room right here and now. This is what we are called to, this lived, connected experience of liberating love. Building on this rich history we have been given as Unitarian Universalists, all these wisdom traditions feed us, Cohn and Gutierrez, all those who have rose up in resistance to the systems of oppression, my mother-in-law and her sisters and her parents, all of this is grounded in this reaching for justice, grounded in this truth. You're guided by them. We look to this moment to our lives, and we ask, where is this existential drive to liberation blocked? Where are people being held back and locked out, and what can we do to help set people free? What can we do to set ourselves free? Again, this is the prophet Isaiah and the theologian Walter Brueggemann, who is in conversation about a beautiful book called The Prophets, he says, this is the Isaiah 43, a much-read passage which goes, Do not remember former things, nor consider the things of old. I am about to do a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? Brueggemann continues, he's apparently telling us, just forget about the exodus, forget about all the ancient miracles, pay attention to this new miracle, to this rebirth, to this new creation before us. I love that, especially for us here this morning. Yes, liberation theology, yes, all the prophets. Now forget all of that and look to this moment to this breath, to this good company, to this blossoming day. This has all we need. Amen.